Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast. A podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today. I'm Whitney Lowe. And I'm Tel Luca. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Thinking, Thinking Practitioner. Practitioner. The Fascia Research Society invites listeners of the Thinking Practitioner Podcast to the 6th International Fascia Research Congress in Montreal, September 10th through 14th, 2022. Eight keynote speakers, including our special guest today, and over 60 parallel session talks and posters, 15 workshops, including one from Till on September 11th, and the full Congress schedule is now out. Register for the 6th International Fascia Research Congress today at fasciaresearchsociety.org. Hi, Till. How are you? And we have a special guest today. Who is it that's with us? I'm great. Thanks, Whitney. I am really pleased to have Dr. Helene Langevin with us today. She is the director of the National Center for Complementary and Integrative Health, the NCCIH, the U.S. federal government's lead agency for scientific research on the diverse medical and healthcare systems, practices, and products that are not generally considered part of conventional medicine. Her own research interests, she's also a researcher, include the role of connective tissue in chronic musculoskeletal pain and the mechanisms of acupuncture, manual, and movement-based therapies. Her more recent work has focused on the effects of stretching on the resolution of inflammation, a topic of great interest to me, within connective tissue, and we'll ask her more about that in today's conversation. Dr. Langevin, thanks for joining us. I'm so pleased to uh, have this bit of time with you, and I appreciate you taking that. Anything else you want people to know about you or what you're bringing to the conversation today? I'm just uh, very, very excited and honored to be uh, on, on the show. Thank you. Oh, thank you. The honor is ours. Anyway, the Boston Globe said you're a celebrity in the world of acupuncture and that your work has, and I know from my own experience that your work has made you a celebrity of sorts within the world of fascial therapies, which is my bailiwick. And your research has included topics that are pertinent and interesting to manual therapists. Uh, you ask some really interesting questions, apparently, and then you go find out about it or uh, write about it in ways that help us all learn uh, more of what's going on on that level. For example, the role of uh, some of your topics that are really interesting and relevant seem to be the role of uh, tissue sniff stiffness and pain, which has lots of implications. Is stiff tissue painful tissue and how does that relate? The effects of stretching on cell function and an inflammation resolution. Can you actually change inflammatory processes or cell functioning through stretching? And your research has some really interesting uh, observations. And you've also written on the science of interoception and proprioception and tissue qualities, really interesting topics. So I want to get into specifics about at least a couple of those, but what, but first, before we do that, what would you say are the common threads here? What kind of big picture questions did you have or, you know, background or perspectives that you have that prompted you to choose these lines of inquiry? Well, I, uh, the I would say the biggest threat that runs through my entire career is really, I think connective tissue is kind of a metaphor for connections, things that connect things that we typically sometimes think of as not connected. So that really intrigued me uh, very early on. Uh, I actually stumbled upon connective tissue by accident. Uh, I was interested in acupuncture and we found out pretty early in my lab, first couple of years I was doing research that actually when you insert an acupuncture needle and then you manipulate the needle, there's a very, very interesting mechanical rela relationship or reaction that occurs in the tissues in response to the, the, the manipulation of the needle. 
And then what we found out is that this is actually the connective tissue uh, kind of responding and, and, and being sort of moved around essentially like a little micro manipulator. And you're showing us with your hand a kind of twisting motion. Yeah, yeah. For those people that don't know much about what acupuncturists do with needles, how would that go? Acupuncturists don't simply insert needles. They actually manipulate them. They rotate. They Sometimes they push and pull. And they, they feel for something in responding in the tissue. That's what tells them, you know, what to do and when to stop manipulating when a certain response has occurred. And pretty early on, we figured out that it was essentially establishing a mechanical coupling between the needle and the tissue. And so there was a, a, a small force essentially being communi- connected, communicated to the tissue through the needle. And the connected tissue was responding to that. And that really made me think about, well, what is connective tissue? And I found out there was actually very little research on connective tissue at the time. Uh, this was back in the, in the uh, 1990s, um, late 90s. And uh, if you looked at textbooks of orthopedics or rheumatology, you know, you, where connective tissue should be, uh, there's almost nothing there. Um, so it, has, it was a, sort of a tissue that had fallen through the cracks. Though. But meanwhile, there were a so lot speak, of... I like cracks. that. <laughs> but there was a lot of practitioners, manual therapists in particular, who cared a great deal about what they were talking about, connective tissue and fascia, people were starting to talk about that. Uh, and as though it was important clinically, but it was really very little research on it. So the combination of the two things, the fact that there was this was a tissue that's all over the body that is very poorly understood, but may have very sort of some clinical importance, uh, that was very intriguing to me right from the start. So I, I that was that was that's really kind of a thread that, you know, been through a lot of you know, a lot of things that, that I've done. That's it's fascinating, and I think um, I know I don't remember which one it was, but I remember hearing about your work, and then I believe hearing you speak at some of the fascial, previous fascial research congresses that were really eye opening for me, and they were great for me as a clinician to see how scientists and researchers were thinking about these questions. Uh, and some of you, I want to ask about one uh, study you did in particular where you used ultrasound to show that people with chronic low back pain had uh, thoracolumbar fascia that was stiffer, say, than those without lower back pain. Can you tell us something about what we know or what you're learning about the relationship between tissue stiffness and pain? We actually did not measure the stiffness of the tissue. This uh-huh. is important. We measured okay. we measured the thickness yeah. of thoracolumbar fascia, and then we measured what we call shear strain. Yeah, which is the relative motion between one layer of fascia and the layer immediately uh, next to it. And so we used ultrasound. Uh, it, it's a technique derived from ultrasound elastography, where you're actually measuring the movement of the tissue in response to a a specific input motion. In this case, it was the the human subject was lying on a a table, a motorized table, and the the table was bending back and forth Mm -hmm. uh, and such that the the thoracolumbar fascia was was kind of under put under stretch. And we wanted to see how much- Like a sliding between layers or something like that. So difficult, well, you can, there are other techniques that can measure 
stiffness in tissue. One of them is what we call shear wave elastography, which is when you send an ultrasound pulse through the tissue, and then there's an ultrasound wave that propagates, and then the speed of propagation of the ultrasound wave correlates with the stiffness of the tissue. We didn't do that. We were interested in the shear plane motion, and the reason for that is because we know that fascia is organized in layers and that these layers have independent motion. We were actually really surprised when we did this testing on the ultrasound, you know, with the subject on the, on the table with normal human subjects. We observed shear strain of an average of 75%. That's a lot of shear strain. So imagine you put your two hands on, front, on top of each other like that mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. slide them completely all the way off. That's 100% shear. Well, so sliding them apart from each other. 100% shear is completely 100 apart. 100% shear is when the whole two, you know, two little sort of pieces of tissue will, you know, you, you can look at this for a, a specific segment of tissue. Mm -hmm. When the two segments would completely sort of separate. Displace, yeah. But in a normal human subject, on average, it was 75% shear. And people, that's a lot. That really intrigued us. This, this is an important component or quality of the thoracolumbar fascia is that all of these layers that are composing this fascia, they all are aponeuroses of different muscles that have different directions of pull. Some of these muscles have a rostrocaudal, right? Front, top to bottom direction of pull. And some, some of them have a, a lateral direction of pull, like the obliques, for example. It makes sense that these muscles with these, these aponeuroses would not all be stuck together. So we were actually very happy to be see that we were able to measure that. So then we looked at people who had back pain and we found that on average, that that shear strain was reduced to 50%. So that was a big dif difference. Not as much sliding between the layers within less the tissue. Sliding, which means that the, the motion, the relative motion of these layers was less independent which suggested that that there was perhaps a um a sort of kind of like almost like an adhesion that was starting to take place we were not able to know that this was taking place in in humans because you can't you cannot go and take a, a biopsy of somebody's thoracolumbar fascia but we tested that hypothesis in, a, in an animal experiment where we found that indeed the layers were more adherent do you have any theoretical ideas or, or thoughts about whether that uh, loss of that is a result of the pain that those individuals were experiencing or if that was a cause? It's a really good question, and we don't know. The only sort of slightly sort of indirect way that we were able to test that was in that animal experiment where I mentioned where we actually we, we reduced the amount of stretching that uh, that the animal was able to do. And as a, in response to that, the layers became more, uh, more essentially stuck together, which suggests that if somebody moves less for whatever reason, it could be because they have pain or it could be simply because they don't move, they're sedentary, they're, they, you know, they have, uh, you know, they don't, they don't stretch a lot or move a lot, then that will then reduce a result in, in, a, in a reduction in their thoracolumbar fascia uh, sheer strength or mobility. So it could be, we don't know, it could be a chicken or egg, right? And then once yeah. somebody's fascia becomes less mobile and they move less, and then maybe that will kind of make, make their pain worse, but we don't know which comes first. Yeah. Fascinating. What's an important question, Whitney, about is it, you know, is the uh, stiffness preceding the pain 
or a result of the pain. And we, you know, I really appreciate your answer. Because there's, there, there are these sort of certs, you know, imagine that you have certain habits of posture, of movement, that then results in remodeling of their connected, your connected tissue, that then, you know, kind of could, could also lead to pain on their own, right? Because entrapment of little nerve fibers in these, in these glued up layers then can maybe lead to pain. We don't really know, but this is, you know, whatever reason there may be pain in these tissues will then uh, change uh, the, mo the movement pattern of the person. If we don't, people move differently when they have pain. So there could be these kind of reinforcing circles that we don't really know where they start. And then there's the question of where do the, well, how do we change those cycles? How do what what can we do that might then influence that? This is from happening, and uh, so a lot of these therapies they act they can act either locally or centrally. You can, for example, instruct people on how to become aware of their movement patterns through awareness, sort of these sort of uh, movement uh, therapies where you, you help people to get out of these sort of stuck movement patterns that they have. They're always moving the same way. Or you can get your hands on the person, feel where they have areas where the, there's restriction, perhaps mobilize some of the tissues, uh, some of the connective tissue that has become sort of uh, stuck. Or you can help people who have uh, contracted muscles, help them to relax those muscles in order to improve the movement. So there's a lot of techniques that can be used both manual techniques and also movement-based techniques. Uh, what we don't know is a lot of the mechanisms of how these techniques works. We, there's a lot of, of experience among clinicians as, as, to, uh, as, as to how to apply those techniques, but very little research on this. And then I know in some of your other writings, like you're writing about uh, uh, interoception or proprioception, there's, there's a lot we don't know about how perception happens or how the experience of pain is generated from that too. That's right. Most of what we know about pain comes from the skin, right? Or nerve injury models. Very little understanding of the sensory innervation of deep tissues. Uh, when we're talking about musculoskeletal system, fascia, muscles, et cetera, we know that there are sensory nerves in these tissues but we know very little about what type of sensations these sensory nerves uh, transmit. Uh, how do you feel? My favorite example of this is that imagine you, you take your forearm and you grab your forearm and then you twist it and you hold it. What kind of sensations are you feeling? There's these sensations are, are definitely, you know, you can feel stretching. Maybe if you twist hard enough, you may feel even a little pain, but you certainly feel something. And this sensation is coming from your deep tissues. And we don't know what the, what sensory neurons are ca are carrying on these sensations, you know. So this is just an area that's almost a little bit of a black box. And when we have when we have uh, back pain or neck pain or shoulder pain or some of these sensations are probably arising from these tissues that we know you know very little about. So this is one of the reasons why at NCCIH we're we're starting to really pay a lot of attention to the kinds of research methods that you need to better understand uh, sources of musculoskeletal pain, including myofascial pain. So we're, we, we recently had a workshop on this and we developed some funding opportunities to, to encourage people to develop uh, better methods 
to do imaging and different types of functional uh, kind of testing of these tissues to better understand what's wrong you know, when people have myofascial pain. Can you measure it? And also, if you treat it, does, does the, the, the pathology get better? And what are the objective uh, uh, measurements that you can make in order to see whether a particular treatment is uh, ameliorating the actual condition of the muscle in addition to the patient hopefully feeling better? Well, a lot of us are on the edge of our seats as you go right. through these questions and oh. find it's you know, the little tidbits that come out, sometimes major tidbits. I was just looking at your 2021 paper, Fascial Mobility Proprioception of Myofascial Pain. And I just, I want to recommend it to our listeners. We'll put a, a link to it in the show notes and also just really appreciate and thank you, Dr. Langevin, for being so clear about what we know and what we don't know and making room in that too for the possibilities of what those implications might be in wonderful ways, but not uh, overextending ourselves into realms where we're starting to lose practicality or lose a sense of what we're up to in a way. I just really appreciated both the, the information you shared and the way you constructed your narrative through that. Thanks very much. Well, can I uh, ask about inflammation? And, and by the way, uh, before I do that, I'm, thank you for correcting my use of the word stiffness in terms of what you found in the thoracolumbar fascia, because uh, yeah, you found sheer, you found sheer strain, you found movement differences and thickness differences, but stiffness, as I understand it, at least, is something that would happen over time, a change over time, in the sense of, or viscoelastic changes, things like that could be stiffness. Yeah. Could, yeah? No, it's, it's something that needs to be measured in, in a different way. A different, and, measured in a different way. Fact, in fact, some of the techniques that we discussed at the workshop on myofascial pains would be able to measure stiffness. Okay. So, uh, for example, the shear wave elastography that I mentioned is, is, is such a technique. And uh, so we're very much hoping that some of the, you know, this is some of the research that, that, that will occur in the future uh, might be mm. able to address that. Well, your, your various uh, research findings and then, of course, others... Uh, have really influenced the way I practice my manual therapy. I'm thinking much more in the last decade, say about about sliding, about shearing, about, you know, rather than just the stiffness instead of what's stiff in terms of what I'm working with. So, like I said, we're waiting on the edge of our seats. And then when we get to something like inflammation, which is a process that's so uh, pervasive or linked with so many of the complaints we see in our practices. Uh, you're again. You have a fascinating tidbit that your research has shown where stretching can actually influence inflammation under certain circumstances. Could you tell us something about that? Well, what we know is only from uh, some animal models. Yeah. Uh, but in those animal models, we did find that gentle stretching, and I repeat, gentle, uh, can have an a, an effect on inflammation that it reduces uh, inflammation in these animal models. And uh, what we think is happening is that stretching is actually helping the animal to promote what we call the resolution of inflammation. It's not suppressing the inflammation, it's helping the inflammation to resolve. And there's an important difference between the two. If you take, for example, Advil or some other anti-inflammatory agent, it suppresses both the inflammation part, but also the resolution part. But if you have your sort of natural built-in inflammation resolution, which occurs 
in 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 any scenario. Say if you cut yourself and you have uh, initially for the first three or four days, you know, the, the, the cut is red and sort of tender and painful, and, and eventually it kind of stops being painful and then the swelling resolves. That's inflammation resolution. It's part of the inflama inflammatory response. From the very beginning of the inflammatory response, there's a program that starts itself in order to terminate it so that inflammation doesn't keep going on forever. And what we found is that stretching encourages that. that encourages that resolution, that cycle to continue through. And the gentle uh, qualifier you gave is also really interesting because for a long time, there've been explanations of manual therapies effects that we might provoke inflammation or we might stimulate fibroblast activities to repair that were essentially damaging perhaps tissue in a way to reboot an inflammatory response. And you're giving us a whole different map. You're saying a gentle stretch seems yeah. to help resolve. I can't comment on efforts to increase inflammation. All I can say is that whenever you do a, a manual or a therapy or stretching, or if you, if you impart a mechanical force that's large enough to be injurious, that will increase inflammation. I mean, mm -hmm. because you're creating an injury. What we notice is that regardless of if you do the kind of stretching that we do in the lab, or even, even when you do the acupuncture that I noticed that I talked about at the beginning, where you gently manipulate the needle, you don't see swelling. You don't see increasing neutrophils in the tissues the next day. You don't see evidence of increased inflammation. If anything, it's your reduction. And I'm assuming too that that you know that type of intervention you wouldn't have some uh, a stretching procedure that would um, s you know speed or have a, an inflammatory resolution occur prior to when the body kind of said essentially we still need to have something going on here like it's not going to speed it up so much to a point that it's it's decreasing the, the the therapeutic benefits of the inflammation. Right. So, but it's, what it's doing is it's it's kind of working in concert with the body's natural efforts to resolve the inflammation. And the reason why we can we think we can say that is because we, we can measure specific uh, compounds called pro-resolving mediators. They're derived from lipids, from, from omega-3 fatty acids, and our body makes, starts with these, these lipids that we take in our diet, like from fish and stuff, and then it makes these, these compounds or pro-resolving mediators or resolvents, for example, at one time. And those are compounds that are several fold more active than the omega-3 fatty acids themselves in, in, in resolving inflammation. Very, very active compounds. And so we think that the stretching and the movement sort of co cooperates with that, with that response. It kind of encourages it. And because we met, we can measure the level of these pro-resolving mediators in the tissues in response to stretching, and they're at, they're increased. So why does inflammation not resolve? What gets in the way of it actually doing that on its own? It's a little mysterious, and so this is a lot of the work of Dr. Charlie Surhan, whom I was fortunate enough to collaborate at Brigham and Women's Hospital uh, in my previous job, and. Um, what he talks about is the balance between the pro-resolving and the pro-inflammatory mediators. 
it's a complicated picture because it's it's very dynamic. There's not just one one or you know you you have a lot of different inflammatory mediators that are contributing to the overall picture of whether the end result is going to be more inflammatory or more resolving. In, in the end, depending on that balance, that you get what you get. Either you get a non-resolving inflammation which continues, or you get a resolving inflammation which just kind of it, it ends. The wraps it winds itself up and it's it's yeah, done. It's yeah. heat, you know the, the, the acute phase starts yeah. to resolve yeah right. otherwise it turns into chronic inflammation mm-hmm. it sticks around and can, keeps doing its uh good and bad things right in a, in a way that's right. not good and, and we know that the end result of chronic inflammation is uh deposition of collagen and fibrosis and uh adhesions and this was very, very nicely demonstrated in a wonderful, in an animal model. So wonderful studies done by uh, Mary Barb and Jeff Bove at, at Temple University, where they, they did a repetitive motion model injury on, a, on rats. They trained them to pull a lever many, many, many times a day to get a reward on. And they kept increasing the force that it took to pull the lever. And these, these rats actually developed inflammation in their a chronic inflammation in their uh, forepaw. And what they then did is they did manual therapy on these rats, if you can believe it. They massaged the animals and they found that the animals that had the daily manual therapy were, kept their function. They, 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 they were still able to do the movement without getting the inflammation as, as nearly as much. So um, this is very interesting how you can see how the, these, these rats were getting chronic inflammation and the manual therapy helped to, to um, they didn't measure the pro-resolving mediators in that experiment, but the, the amount of inflammation was certainly diminished. That was uh, that was a really interesting study when that came out. I, I'm, it's been a while since I've read it, but I think if I remember, they were actually observing the neurons or the cells within the nervous system to try to measure inflammatory response and so that's right creative they, way they, like yeah they looked at the connective tissue surrounding the nerve because and this is important again normally right talking about shear plane motion a nerve has a sheet of connective tissue around it and this sheet of connective tissue should be mobile it should it the nerve should not be stuck and attached to the surrounding muscles but in in when you have fibrosis, you can get fibrosis around the nerve, which then makes the nerve essentially less mobile, there's less shear strain between the nerve and the surrounding tissue. And what they found is that there was less fibrosis surrounding these, these nerves in these animals. And um, they measured this degraded myelin basic protein in the nerves, and it was elevated in the non-massaged rat, and it was uh, near normal in the massaged rat. So the nerve injury was prevented. So we, we have a, that interesting evidence or the interesting study in rats about massage or manual therapy ability to help resolve inflammation. What else do we, what can we extrapolate from that or guess? Or what do we know about our ability to influence resolution? That's like the you know huge question behind all this. But what do we know about our ability to influence that? Uh, we don't know a whole lot other than there's a lot of effort in the pharmaceutical industry to develop compounds that you, you could take, you know, like resolvent, you know, that yeah. to, to improve inflammation uh, res- resolution. So far, I mean, 
for example, omega-3 fatty acids, a lot of people think that you could, by taking fish oil, that you could in, uh, resolve, you know, in, in, improve uh, inflammatory condition. The one condition where that has been shown is uh, rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, patients with rheumatoid arthritis who take a supplement of fish oil uh, can be shown to have reduced uh, inflammation. So, but not other conditions. People have tried with other like asthma and you know inflammatory bowel disease, and it's it's not it's not like you know uh, the cure all that you that that people were hoping. <laughs> yeah. So I want to um, kind of take off from what you were saying too. This this is fascinating about these these rat studies and the the changes that they found from from soft tissue manipulation from your perspective and the work that you've done. What do you see to be some of the most significant effects of manual soft tissue manipulation on the fascial system? Like what, what do you kind of sense to be the most impactful or powerful of those, of those effects? Um, I would say that the, one of the important things is I already alluded to is that more is not necessarily better, right? that you have to be very careful about how much you do, whether it's movement, exercise, and or manual therapy, the dose matters. And we need to understand better how to apply uh, this, these, these, these forces without further injuring uh, the tissues. And the other thing that's really important is to make sure that we understand the status of the underlying tissue. Imagine you have somebody who has either hypo or hypermobility, right? We've described a situation of hypomobility where layers are stuck together. But what if there's hypermobility? Patients who already have very loose connective tissue, like for example, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, or yeah. the sort of generalized hypermobility disorders, which are quite common. What do you do in a situation like that where somebody has pain and their tissues are already very mobile? You're not going to want to stretch them more, right? They can be looking for more shear strain or more mobility necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. You could damage the tissues by, and, and sometimes this happens. People who have hypermobility, and they'll go and they do yoga and that they injure themselves because they're trying to stretch and they're already too, too much, they're too, too much mobile. Mm -hmm. So the important is to be able to be judicious about when do you need to increase mobility via the stretching or what you may need in a lot of cases is strengthening the muscles so that they can support the tissues more. Importantly, they may be a combination of the two. You may have somebody who is hypermobile generally, but who've had some injuries because a lot of people who are hypermobile have had a lot of injuries. And then in some cases, Locally, you may have some areas of hypomobility. So you may have a mixture. People may need to be mobilized in some areas if they're stuck or they have a scar or an injury or, or, or an adhesion, but not everywhere. So this is where the, the art of the therapist, you know, comes in and be able to really, you know, understand that by palpating and feeling the tissues and watching how the patient moves. Well, you've you've uh, spoken eloquently in a couple of different places about contextual effects or non-specific effects of our work too. So when we think about some of hypermobility, it's not like our only tool is loosening 
or more shear strain or something like that. There's many ways that we can leverage someone's experience uh, besides tissue mobility. Yeah. Every therapy has contextual or what we call non-specific effects, right? Yeah. The interaction with the person, how being in the presence of somebody who's who cares, you know, who's who has a, a physical presence and uh, sort of a you know support, and especially somebody who puts your, their hands on on you, right? And then there's a lot of connect communication that can happen non-verbally through somebody's hands, uh, but also talking and 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 when people feel that somebody who is a good therapist is actually physically kind of contacting the area that actually hurts in a way that's supportive and, and, and caring and intentional. That's, that's very powerful, you know, psychologically. So there's a lot of, yes, there's a lot of contextual effects and these effects are, are part of the, of the treatment. They're very important. Uh, so are those uh, real or are they imaginary? Oh, I'm sorry. I get that. I'm sorry to ask that question. I, I, didn't, that. I, 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 there's nothing imaginary about what I just described, right? This is yeah. all real. This is happening. Yeah. Whether it's happening in the person's, you know, nervous system, there's some incredible studies right now that are being conducted with a, uh, they're mainly in the acupuncture world. That's fascinating. A, a, a patient and a practitioner that are being uh, functional MRI scanning simultaneously. It's called hyperscanning. It's unbelievable. So what they do is they do sort of simulated treatment where the, the practitioner, I don't begin to understand the intricacies of these experiments, but basically this is just to show that there's therapeutic, the, the therapeutic alliance between a, a, a patient and a practitioner is reflected in both of their brains <laughs> at the same time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So there's this amazing con communication that occurs between uh, the, in the, in the nervous system during a, 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 a treatment between the patient and the practitioner. And that's real. That's measurable. Thank so you. yeah, it's real. All right. I mean, in some ways, no surprise, something's happening, both there's brain. It's it's, in other ways, so great that it's, it's measurable and observable and that someone like yourself can be a spokesman, both for the mechanical effects on the tissue level, but also saying this is happening within a context Let's not leave that out too. What do you think, Whitney? Yeah, it, it does seem like there is a, a, a continuum there of those things. I remember seeing some other things written about acupuncture, about um, looking at effectiveness and saying that there were sometimes, you know, cultural factors and things like that that made it more effective with certain patient populations than others. And a lot of that had to do with belief in the treatment and things like that. And it is fascinating to see that intersection between what are potentially some of the you know, more grounded physiological effects and some of those other context effects that may also be interacting with the systems as well. And they're all very real. You know, when we yeah. talk about what placebo effects are, I like to think of placebo effects as healing responses, mm -hmm. self-healing responses that a person can activate in response to being under in a certain circumstances. And, you know, you can do a, you know, a fake, you know, treatment, but there's still a treatment happening there's still yeah. something that the person interprets as being some kind of trigger to help them to activate some some healing responses that can happen even with placebos yeah, yeah. so yeah i'm glad you mentioned placebos because there's some there's so much complication around that 
hypothetical question I ask you, is that real? And you've just made a really great case for how it's real, not only real, but it's part and parcel of what we offer. It's, it's important. It's important that we understand what it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah. And there's some excellent placebo resp- um, research happening uh, right now all over the world. It's, this is an area of research that really needs uh, more, more attention. It's very important. These are certainly uh, fascinating topics, and I know we could go on uh, for days digging into some of these things, but tell us a little bit, what will you be talking about at the Fascia Research Congress? I'll be talking about fascia. (laughs) (laughs) I'll I'll probably, I mean, uh, I don't have my entire talk mapped out at the moment, but one of the things I will most very likely talk about is uh, some of the new initiatives that NCTIH is is, uh, leading. One is, I already mentioned, myofascial uh, pain, mm-hmm. uh, developing technology to measure and and especially imaging technologies uh, to to better understand myofascial tissues. We think this is absolutely crucially important. Another in, important initiative is uh, something called rejoin, and what what that what that means is that imagine a joint, right? Imagine somebody has pain in their knee. Uh, and their knee hurts. Well, you assume, right, that that this person was saying, well, I have pain in my knee. It must be arthritis. It must be because my cartilage is kind of rubbing. You know, people talk about bone on bone, that kind of thing. That's why you have pain. But there's a lot of things in the knee and around the knee besides cartilage. There's joint capsule, there's ligaments, there's fascia, there's muscles. It's, how, do, how do you know if you have pain in your knee where your pain is coming from? You don't. And we know a lot less about the, what we call the periarticular structures around the knee than the it, articular structures, the cartilage, the synovium, the bone, because that's where we've been looking. You know, we've been looking at, we have ways to, to, to image those structures, but we don't yet have very good ways to image the, what we call the soft tissues. Yeah. So we think that by improving our ability to understand myofascial pain, this is also going to improve our ability to understand joint pain. Mm -hmm. Because we think that myofascial pain could be a big component of joint pain. And that problem with myofascial tissues may actually lead to joint pain. Because if your myofascial tissues are not healthy, if you have reduced mobility, if you have imbalance in your muscles, your joint may become misaligned the mechanical forces on the joint are going to not be correct and you're going to get wear in your articular surfaces. So by addressing the myofascial tissues, the periarticular tissues early, you might be able to prevent joint pain. So we think this is a really important area. I'm going to be talking about that. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that. So, you know, with our audience being predominantly those doing soft tissue manipulation of various one form or another, is there anything else you'd like to leave to this audience to tell us um, before we wrap up today, like last words of wisdom for those people doing this type of work? Well, a lot of what I talked about is about putting things together. I Mm -hmm. talked about connective tissue, connecting the whole body. I talked about, you know, understanding the relationship between the musculoskeletal system and the immune system, right? Inflammatory responses occurring within connective tissues. Um, And, and, and also talk about the importance of, uh, what we call whole person health, which mm-hmm. means paying attention to all of the different factors that kind of contribute to somebody uh, being more versus less healthy. Uh, uh, nutrition, 
physical activity and also psychological factors like stress, sleep. Uh, this, all, all of these factors are important and it, they're important no matter what part of the body you look at. So at NCCIH, our, our, our new strategic plan is, is really focused on this, on whole person health and really understanding the factors that influence whether somebody is going to uh, move towards disease or back towards health, because we think this is an important piece. We, under, we, we really focus a lot more on what we call pathogenesis, which is the creation of disease, as opposed to salutogenesis, which is the creation of health. We need to understand much better how to promote that, how to encourage healing uh, of tissues and resilience and, and health restoration. So these are the components of whole person health are what the whole person, meaning the whole, and health, which is uh, moving in in the towards the health direction. Wonderful. Thank you so much. That's uh, wonderful, um, inspirational ideas for, I think, a lot of people who are doing this type of work. And where would you send our listeners if they wanted to know more about your work? Well, the first thing I would suggest is that people visit our website at nccih.org. It's .nih, right? .nih.org. .gov, excuse me. What am I talking about? .gov. And that to check out a lot of the presentations that I talked about are on my director's page. We also have links to a video cast of all the, of the workshops that I mentioned that are all uh, listed on our website. Uh, we also have a lot of information on various different kinds of, of therapies. Uh, we have a lot of uh, our, our science um, pages. I have many, many different information for, for, for practitioners, for, for, for consumers, for researchers. So it's a really good resource and follow us on social media. Twitter, etc. So, um, well, that certainly sounds wonderful. And thank you again so much for your time today, Dr. Langevin. We, we know you're very busy and uh, we really appreciate you taking the time out to speak with us and our listeners. So um, keep in mind the Thinking Practitioner podcast is supported by ABMP, the Associated Bodywork and Massage Professionals. ABMP membership gives professional practitioners like you a package, including individual liability insurance, free continuing education and quick reference apps legislative advocacy, and much more. ABMP's CE courses, podcast, and Massage and Bodywork magazine always feature expert voices and new perspectives in the profession, including me, Till, and Whitney Lowe. We're both there. Thinking practitioner listeners can save on joining ABMP at abmp.com slash thinking. And we would like to say thank you to all our sponsors and to you, the listeners. We thank you for hanging out with us here today. Be sure to check out the Fascia Research Congress on their website there. You can stop by our sites for show notes where you can learn more about uh, connecting with the uh, Fascia Research Congress. Um, so over there, show notes, transcripts, and any other extras, you can find that from my site at academyofclinicalmassage.com. And Till, from uh, your site, where can people find that? Advanced-trainings.com there are questions or things you want to hear us talk about, email us at info at thethinkingpractitioner.com or look for us on social media just under our names. Mine remains, Till Luca, Whitney. And mine still today is Whitney Lowe. You can rate us on Apple Podcasts as it helps other people find the show. And you can hear us on Spotify, Stitcher, 
Google Podcasts, or wherever else you happen to listen. And please do share the word and tell a friend. It does help us uh, get the word out to get other people exposed to it. So thank you again, everybody. Thank you so much again, Dr. Langevin, for spending some time with us here today. This was a wonderful, inspiring uh, talk with everybody. Pleasure.